You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got super lucky and got to watch the Oscars this year at the Academy Museum's event, which was really fun. But let's be honest, unless the roof had caved in on the Dolby Theater, we were really only going to be talking about one thing from that night today. And, you know, (laughs) I complained that last year that the Oscars were bad and boring, and they were better produced this year for sure. And you know, a really bad thing happened. I work in entertainment, so this was everywhere for me this week. It dominated my newsfeed. I don't know, for those of you who don't live and work in LA, what that must have been like. I mean, my mom was texting me nonstop about it, so at the very least, it was prevalent in Northern California. But yeah, if you don't know what happened on Sunday and you listen to this podcast as it comes out and don't know about what happened, you are quite the niche listener. (laughs) And I've been toiling over the week about how much to talk about, you know, the whole Will Smith assaulting Chris Rock on stage for telling a joke said by a comedian who likely didn't even write said joke and whether Will Smith was asked to leave by the Academy or not and all the drama that's come out of it. But based on all the reports that are still coming out and just everyone's general fatigue of the reporting on it, let's just not. It's gotten more than enough attention this week Like, when the investigation by the Academy is finished, then at least we have, like, some concrete facts to go on other than, you know, what actually, what we actually saw happen. And on top of that, a bigger conversation needs to happen about celebrity and the lack of consequences for their bad behavior. Because no matter what the joke was, he could have called him an a-hole to his face. No one should have to be afraid of being assaulted physically in any form while they're doing their job. But that goes far beyond what happened on Sunday. That is a much, much bigger issue. First off, if you didn't see Questlove's acceptance speech for Best Documentary because of what happened immediately before that, please do. It's on YouTube. It's beautiful and sincere and probably the best speech of the night. Overall, I thought the ceremony was a huge improvement over the last few. Host is definitely the way to go. And... Hosting the Oscars is such a thankless gig. Apparently, they were like 40 people deep before they got Wanda, Regina, and Amy. So, you know, this is how, you know, it's not a not an easy job to have and a very thankless job to have because no matter what, people are going to bitch incessantly. And they did. And I personally thought they did a pretty good job. I have seen... It's like everyone's got a short memory with how bad some of the hosts have been. Did we all forget Anne Hathaway and James Franco? Give them a break. And then the other thing, you know, everyone didn't like was the in memoriam. And it was a little funky. I will I will concede that. But I liked that they tried something different. Did it work? Not really. But it was better than the time they tried to end the Oscars with an in memoriam type speech from a man's widow. And then the award went to Anthony Hopkins instead, who wasn't even there. So, you know, baby steps, improvement. They're 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 improving. It's just at a very slow rate. 
If you listened last week, you're not surprised. I was super happy to see Coda win. Never would I have guessed that Apple TV would be the first streamer to win an Oscar. For a film they didn't actually make, they purchased it for their streaming site for $25 million, but I guess it still counts. This is for sure opened the door for the streamers, for better or worse. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But yeah. The Oscars happened, people won trophies, life goes on. Since writing this, by the way, just adding this in, Will Smith has willingly given up his Academy membership. So, you know, I'm sure by the time I'm recording this Saturday morning, like 20, not even 24 hours before it comes out, I'm sure by the time I finish recording this, something else will happen. And, but, you know, the move was not a stupid one because it was likely a I didn't get fired, I quit move. Anyway, moving on. For movie theater movie reviews this week, we've got The Lost City, starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. This film is about a romance author who finds herself forced into the middle of a search for an ancient treasure. When her cover model comes to rescue her, chaos ensues. I thought this movie was really sweet. It was pretty good. It was really funny. I was surprised that this got a March release. This this felt more like an April-May type move. Um, But yeah, honestly, forgot about it a lot because my brain has been full of Oscar stuff since Sunday night. I just remember that I liked it. The message at the end was was really, really cute and sweet and gushy. And it's a really good date movie, even though I did go see it with my father. But I can recognize it without that being weird, right? I'm not sure. Pretend I didn't say that. All right. New month, new theme. This week, we're doing a director spotlight type series of episodes of sorts as we cover the life and works of Francis Ford Coppola. As you know, I decided I had a different theme in mind, a little bit different. It was going to be about, you know, the new Hollywood movement. But then I decided just to focus on one member of that, Francis Ford Coppola, because the show is coming out at the end of this month. I think it's like, I don't remember but yeah, it's the end of this month. It's coming out on Paramount Plus. Um, and I thought it'd be cool to kind of just go. So you have some, if you want to watch that, have some background information going in. Like, what did they embellish? What did they get right? You know, I love ripping apart biopics. What can I say? So to kick this off this week, we're starting uh, just talking about his life. Just a quick, like, you know, I do my brief histories. This is a brief history. We're going to go over the early life of Coppola, his his works, not the big ones that we're going to cover later. The big ones we're covering later are The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. We will glaze over them so you have at least, like a chronology of when everything happened. But yeah, if you know a fact about one of those movies and it's not mentioned, it's probably going to come up in the next three weeks. But yeah, so this is this is his life, the cliff note version and some of the things that just, you know, happened in his career and his life and all the stuff and the things. You, This is like the 76th episode. You know what's up. Yeah, I ramble when I go off um, when I go off script. And the, if you can't tell, the last bit was very off script. So, yeah, with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Francis Ford Coppola was born into an Italian family in Detroit on April 7, 1939, to Carmine a flautist with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and Mother Italia. His maternal grandfather was the popular Italian composer Francesco Panino. 
Coppola is the middle of three children. His older brother, August, was an educator for most of his career before transitioning to working in entertainment. And his younger sister is actress Talia Shire. When Francis was two, no, I, I don't like calling him Francis. It feels weird. When Coppola was two, his father accepted a job as the principal flautist for the NBC Symphony Orchestra and the family moved to the Big Apple, specifically Woodside, Queens, where Coppola would grow up. When he was nine, young Coppola contracted polio. This led to the future filmmaker being bedridden for large periods of his childhood, allowing him to indulge in his imagination with homemade puppet shows. Before long, that evolved into making 8mm films. Young Coppola was also a self-proclaimed boy scientist and very into electricity and techie stuff in general. He was also big into fairy tales and stories, citing Captain Midnight as one of his favorites. So, someone who loves electricity and storytelling and techie stuff, filmmaking kind of seems like the natural path he would take. I mean, he literally put it himself, quote, Technology and stories take you to the cinema. Young Coppola was a quiet child. He also wasn't the best student in the world, leading to his father putting him in 23 different schools. And as a result of these constant moves, Coppola didn't get the chance to make really any solid friendships. To combat this, he found solace in the theater department at each school, working behind the scenes. It was also, in his words, where all the girls were. But the work paid off in a different way, as working behind the scenes in the theater departments of all these schools allowed him to get a partial college scholarship for playwriting. Coppola ended up at Hofstra College, where he majored in theater arts, specifically drama. While there, he directed several plays of his own making in the off hours. He compared himself to like the lead character in Rushmore as to what he was like in the theater department during this era. By his senior year, Coppola had planned to go to Yale to continue his studies as a playwright. But everything changed when Coppola saw a poster for Sergei Eisenstein's October 10 Days That Shook the World, a 1928 silent film about the October Revolution of 1917 in the Soviet Union. Upon seeing the film, Coppola was taken with the filmmaking and storytelling, specifically the editing. He left that movie theater a changed man. Playwriting was out. He was going to film school. He picked up and relocated to the West Coast, where he joined the UCLA Film Studies Department. By the early 1960s, Coppola was in the trenches of film school, which he found infinitely lonely when compared to the theater. He was also broke, surviving on just $10 per week. Looking for a way to earn some extra money, he found that many of his film school buddies paid their bills shooting erotic productions, which were known as nudie cuties or skin flicks. Basically, it was just kind of like softcore porn. It showed nudity without actually showing sexy times. At 21, Coppola wrote a script for such skin flick called The Peeper, which was a comedic short about a voyeur who tries to spy on a sensual photo shoot in the studio next to his apartment. He found an interested investor who gave him three grand to make it. Coppola hired a Playboy playmate to play the model and a friend of his to play the voyeur. When the peeper was finished, the still unknown Coppola tried to find a buyer, but the cartoonish aspects of the film alienated most of them. And frankly, it just wasn't horny enough for the dirty movie theaters. So that was kind of a bust for now. For the next few years, Coppola continued either making on the cheap or re-editing skin flicks to pay the bills. Then he took a job as an assistant to Roger Corman, whom was known as the Pope of Pop Cinema. 
This job would get Coppola out of the softcore porn era of his career and let him sneak into the filmmaking world. Corbin was so impressed with Coppola, he was hired as a dialogue director and did a bunch of sound stuff for a few of Corman's films in the early 60s, including 1962's Tower of London. While on location in Ireland for the Young Racers in 1962, Corman, who never shied away from making a good movie for next to no money, persuaded Coppola to use leftover funds from racers to make a low-budget horror movie that Corman wanted to feel similarly to Psycho. That film would become Dementia 13, which released the following year and was made over the course of nine days at a cost for of about 40 grand. Making the film came with an added bonus too for Coppola, as on the set he met an assistant art director named Eleanor Jesse Neal, whom would become his wife. The two would have three children, Giancarlo in 1963, Roman in 1965, and Sophia in 1971. In 1965, Coppola won the Samuel Goldman Award for a screenplay he'd written while in school. He was still in school at this point, by the way. This job managed to secure him a job at Seven Arts, which later merged with Warner Brothers, where he co-wrote several scripts. Coppola graduated with his film degree in 1967, his thesis film being 1966's You're a Big Boy Now, which cost a million dollars to make. This is not the norm anymore unless you have, like, super loaded parents, by the by. In comparison... My thesis film, which was not feature length, it was like, I think, 15 minutes long and cost about 30 grand to make. That's quite a bit more common these days. Anyway, Coppola's film was released commercially by Warner Brothers and actually was nominated for some major awards, including Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. So yeah, in a time where the market was so crappy, because this was the the death of the studio system, remember, where they were still trying to make those musicals that nobody wanted to see. So yeah, this was a time where a thesis film could easily get you into the door in Hollywood. It wasn't long until Coppola was getting big offers. This included the film adaptation of the musical Finian's Rainbow in 1968. Coppola wanted to shoot the film on location in Kentucky, but Warner forced him to shoot on the backlot in the ruins of the Camelot set, which had shot the year prior. Studios were not big on location shoots at this time. If they could do it on the lot, do it on the lot because they were afraid of the, the sound stages becoming, you know, useless. With the dying studio system still the easiest way to get a film made and seen by, you know, the majority of the population, though not for much longer, Coppola tried to find a way to get around the studios and their vision reigns. Basically, all their opinions about creativity things, even though they've never had a creative job in their lives. So Coppola did what many filmmakers do nowadays and made his own production company, which he called Zoetrope. His intention with the founding of Zoetrope was to produce mainstream films for big studios to finance his more indie projects, and also to give first-time directors their chance to sit in the director's chair. Coppola and new collaborator George Lucas, who you may have heard of, whom Coppola had been mentoring while Lucas was a student at USC, set off to get Zoetrope running, and while they had originally wanted to set up shop in a Marin County mansion, the two filmmakers had to settle for a warehouse in San Francisco because they were getting a lot of equipment and had no place to stash it. Headquarters of Zoetrope became San Francisco, which was close enough to L.A. to access L.A. film resources, but far enough away to be able to kind of get to do their own thing. Coppola and Lucas were a part of what became known as New Hollywood, which included directors like Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and Brian De Palma. They were a group of filmmakers that challenged the studio system and the long-held traditions that had put most, if not all, of the studios by this time into financial trouble. 
The first Zoetrope film was written, directed, and produced by Coppola himself, though he would go over budget and the film would have to be underwritten by distributor Warner Brothers, then called Seven Arts Warner Brothers. The film was called The Rain People, which released in 1969. The film was shot on the road, with Lucas and Coppola driving in RVs across the country, rigged with all of the filmmaking equipment needed to shoot a motion picture at that time, which was a lot of, a lot of shit, especially compared to now. Honestly, dream. I would love to do something like this. Coppola also co-wrote the script for the 1970 film Patton, which earned him his first Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. After that came what is probably Coppola's masterpiece. Yes, The Godfather. Now, we are doing, again, an entire deep dive on The Godfather next week, and I don't want to repeat myself too much, but pretty much every step of production on this film was batshit bananas. So much so, there is, you know, the series coming out on Paramount at the end of the month, all about that. Coppola took the job for The Godfather in no small part due to the fact that Zoetrope was cash poor after making Lucas's THX 1138, and a big studio movie like The Godfather could change their fortunes pretty quickly. Not only that, Coppola already had two kids, and a third one was on the way. Oh, and they owed Warner like 400k, but you know, semantics. When it came time to write the script, Coppola got rid of two-thirds of Mario Puzo's book, on which the film is based, focusing only on a part of it that dealt with a father and son of a fictional mob family. All drama aside, and again, that's next week's du jour, The Godfather was a massive box office hit, the fifth highest grossing film of the 1970s. The film currently sits on the AFI Best Films of All Time list at number two, second only to Citizen Kane. Marlon Brando would win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his betrayal of the titular Godfather after Coppola fought tooth and nail to get him cast at all. Coppola was nominated for Best Director and he and Puzo won the award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Finally financially secure, at least for the time being, Coppola, like he'd always planned to do with Zoetrope, made a less commercial, more personal film, which he wrote, directed, and produced, called The Conversation, which released in 1974. The film was about how technology takes away our humanity, which of course it pretty much has been before and since that film was made, so right on there. The plot of the film is that a surveillance expert who suspects that a couple upon whom he is electronically eavesdropping on are about to be murdered. Once again, Coppola was nominated for the film's script, and the film was also nominated for Best Picture. While shooting The Conversation, Coppola was also shooting The Godfather Part 2, I'm assuming just because he hates to sleep. Originally, Coppola did not want to direct the film, though he offered to help with the script and to find a suitable directing replacement. He tried to get Martin Scorsese the gig, but Paramount refused. Head of the studio at the time, Charlie Bludorn, called Coppola up and asked what it would take to get him back in the director's chair for the sequel. Coppola wanted three things. A million bucks, Robert Evans, whom had been the head of production during the first Godfather film and with whom Coppola had many issues with, again, next week fodder. But yeah, he would not be allowed to see the script or anything about the film until it was completed, like hands completely off of it. And finally, he wanted to call the film The Godfather Part 2. The last one ended up being The Hardest Sell. Coppola states in the 2002 commentary of the film that The Godfather Part 2 was the first major motion picture to use Part 2 in its title, basically to number it, which the studio didn't want to do. Get rid of Bob Evans? Fine. But they did not want a film called Part 2. 
They were worried audiences would think it was an extension of the first film and not a new movie. I don't get the logic behind that because if they liked it, why wouldn't they want to see more of it? But, you know, studio logic isn't always the best logic in the world. But, you know, Coppola's conditions were his conditions and eventually Paramount relented. The movie ended up being so popular that it kickstarted studios numbering films that were sequels. The movie was released in 1974 and went on to receive outstanding critical acclaim, with many calling it the superior of the two Godfathers. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and received six, including three for Coppola, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and his first Oscar for Best Director. He became the third director, today there are five, to have two films that he directed be up for Best Picture in the same year. He was the first to have also served as a producer for both films. The prior two had not been producers on their films. So you'd think with all of the success that he was having, like he just had two, technically three bangers, he could make whatever movie he wanted, right? No, wrong. Coppola wanted his next film to be Apocalypse Now, which we'll be covering in detail in two weeks. Nobody would give him what he thought was a satisfactory amount of money to make this film, so Coppola, not for the first time, not for the last, put up his own money to do so. $30 million of it. Based on the book Hearts of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, the film is set in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. The production of this film was plagued by Murphy's Law mishaps just left and right. This included typhoons, nervous breakdowns, they fired Harvey Cartel, Martin Sheen had a heart attack, and extras from the Philippine military and half of the supplied helicopters leaving in the middle of scenes to fight rebels. The film was delayed so often that it was nicknamed in the press Apocalypse When. In fact, so much went wrong during production that 1991's Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, directed by Coppola's own wife, Eleanor, was made and released. I haven't watched it yet, and I'm making two weeks from now the special week for that. I've seen clips of it a million times, but never the whole doc, and I'm super excited because I have heard it is just utter chaos. Coppola summed up the production on this film thusly, quote, We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too much money. Too much equipment, and little by little, we went insane. But at the end of the day, Coppola had struck lightning four times in a row. Apocalypse Now was nominated for a flurry of awards, including Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay at the Oscars. Out of eight nominations, the film only took home Best Cinematography. It is also considered to be one of the masterpieces of the new Hollywood era. As recently as 2019, Coppola has still been issuing different versions of the film, with the 2019 version being his favorite. Of course it is. I haven't seen the 2019 one yet. I've seen the Redux, but I haven't seen the 2019 one, so maybe I'll do that in a couple weeks too. Apocalypse Now marked the end of Coppola's golden era, a mere seven years after it began. The 1980s started out in disaster with 1982's musical comedy One From the Heart, which after making Apocalypse Now, I get why Coppola would want to make a more chill film. Maybe a musical, very happy, traditionally. But One for the Heart cost $26 million to make and grossed less than $650,000. You don't need to be a mathematician to know that's really, really bad. The failure of the film forced Coppola to sell the zoetrope backlot in 1983, which he had only acquired three years prior from General Service Studios. By the by, if this kind of stuff interests you, the land is actually still a studio today as it's been for 102 years and is now known as Sunset Las Palmas Studios. 
Coppola would spend the rest of the 1980s working to pay off his debts, which were substantial. Zotrope Studios filed for bankruptcy in 1990, after which its name was changed to American Zoetrope. So yeah, Coppola had to go make some studio pictures because he owed Bakes a metric fuck ton of money. This included 1983's The Outsiders, which was based on S.E. Hinton's novel of the same name. Right on the tails of the film, Coppola got money to adapt another S.E. Hinton novel called Rumblefish. Warner was pissed that Coppola was splitting his focus and refused to finance Rumblefish when he'd originally asked because they wanted him to be editing The Outsiders. So Coppola just went right across the street to Universal, literally the back of Universal's backlot and the front of Warner Brothers' backlot are damn near right across the street from each other, like not even a three minute walk apart, and got financing for Rumblefish from them. The two films, in addition to being shot back to back, also utilized many of the same actors. Both films released in the same year. Critics considered Rumblefish, ironically, the better of the two. Both dealt with youths and gangs. The Outsiders was about the rivalry between two gangs, the poor greasers and the rich socks, which heats up when one gang member kills a member of the other. Rumblefish dealt with an absent-minded street thug named Rusty James, who struggles to live up to his older brother's reputation and longs for the days of gang warfare. 1984's Cotton Club saw Coppola's much-anticipated return to the big-budget gangster films. Although his recreation of 1930s Harlem was fantastic, and the film was well-cast, and everything looked really nice, and it was well-produced, the film was panned by critics. Cotton Club is, by the way, definitely one of his underappreciated films. Highly recommend. Then Coppola did, you know, kind of like his out-of-the-box ones, like he's one to do, with the quirky Peggy Sue Got Married from 1986. The film was a much-needed box office success for Coppola, if a modest one. The 80s closed out with a whisper rather than a bang for him. There was the somber Gardens of the Stone from 87, which didn't do well commercially or critically, unfortunately, and Tucker, a man and his dream from 1988, which was critically beloved, but commercially meh. But the 80s weren't a total loss. At the end of the decade, Coppola and Puzo were asked once more by Paramount to make another Godfather film. Ironically, Coppola wanted to call it The Death of Michael Corleone, but Paramount wanted The Godfather Part 3, which of course was the title of the film when it released in 1990, How the Tables Have Turned. I have only seen this film once, and, and based on the first two films, it is a far fall from grace. See it once to know what it is, and then pretend it doesn't exist. Like, you know, like what I do with the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones. They didn't they didn't exist. It never happened. Originally, Winona Ryder had been cast as the daughter of Michael Corleone, but was replaced by Coppola's daughter, Sophia. Let's just say, I don't want to be a dick, but Sophia, while she's become a pretty decent director in her own right, ain't gonna win no acting awards anytime soon. The film was commercially successful because it was a Godfather film and people, you know, it had been 16 years. People wanted a Godfather movie, but it was critically panned. And I'm pretty sure Sophia got a Razzie nomination for the 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 abhorrent acting. I'm, I can still picture it behind my eyelids. It's terrible. Godfather Part 3 did give Coppola enough money to be able to finance Bram Stoker's Dracula, which we'll be covering in more detail in three weeks because it's one of my favorite movies and has my favorite actor in it. So big bias, but hey, my podcast. Coppola made the film, the source material of which was written around the same time as the invention of cinema. Bram Stoker's Dracula, I believe, was made in eight, written in 1898, 1899. I forgot to look that up, not gonna lie. 
And so as a result, because, you know, that was when cinema came around, Coppola wanted to use effects that were available at the turn of the century to do the special effects in his movie. In fact, when a fully qualified crew of effects dudes came to Coppola with modern ways to have these film effects done, he fired them all and hired his unexperienced son, Roman. Every shot of that movie, save for a few that were done on the Universal backlot, were all shot on the Columbia backlot, which is now the Sony backlot, and you know, all the way back was the MGM backlot. Nothing was done on location for this film, which was news to me, and had I continued not to know, I would have assumed they shot this in London. Despite all the crazy things he did for this film, Bram Stoker's Dracula would be the most accurate adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel and would return Coppola to bankability status. Another thing that I think is important to mention is how Coppola works with actors because it's unique these days given budgetary and time restrictions. For example, as you see extensively in the Bram Stoker behind the scenes footage, Coppola loves to rehearse his actors. It's definitely got to be a long held practice holdover from his theater days because it gives like real hardcore like kids in the theater department vibes. He has them like do improvs and acting games and just bond in betwixt rehearsing the actual script for the film they're about to shoot. Coppola likes allowing the actors to find their characters and to form the bonds needed for the film before a camera ever rolls, you know, much like a theater performance. So I really, really dig that. And it's a shame that that's not really a practice anymore. A film I didn't realize Coppola made until this week because it's just kind of out of left field was 1996's Jack, which stars Robin Williams as a young boy whom ages four times the normal rate. So when he's 10, he looks 40. I remember seeing this film as a kid and just absolutely loving it. I think this might be actually the first Coppola film I ever saw. And I've been having a very long held belief that it was Bram Stoker's Dracula, but I definitely saw this before I saw Dracula. Jack was a minor success and a critical failure, with many critics comparing it unfavorably to 1988's Big, in which a child gets stuck in a man's body after a run-in with one of those, like, Zoltar machines. Despite the backlash, Coppola later stated he was proud of the film. The last film Coppola directed in the 90s was 1997's The Rainmaker, which was based on a John Grisham novel and was a courtroom drama. The film did well critically, and Coppola finished out the 90s much stronger than he did the 80s. But despite that, he would not direct again for another 10 years. But don't think he was like enjoying retirement or anything like that. This dude has infinite side hustles. Coppola had entered the wine industry in 1975 with the purchase of a vineyard in Rutherford, California, which is in Napa Valley, with money he'd earned from The Godfather. His winery produced his first vintage in 77 with the help of his family, whom were stomping the grapes barefoot, and every year, apparently, the family continues that tradition. He later bought a winery in 2005 in my hometown of Geyserville, which he sold in 2021, but as of the last time I was there back in December, still has his name on it. In 2018, he purchased another winery in Oregon. He's also got resorts in Belize, Argentina, Italy, and Guatemala. Coppola also has a lifestyle brand called Francis Ford Coppola Presents, which sells goods from companies he owns or controls. In addition to all the properties which all fall under this, it also includes films and videos, a literary magazine, and a line of pasta and pasta sauces called Mamarella Foods. You, they're in the grocery stores, at least in, in L.A. They're not hard to find. In 2018, Coppola announced plans to start a cannabis company, which he named Sana Company LLC. They currently make three strains of weed. But back to directing. Coppola returned to the director's chair with 2007's Youth Without Youth, which frankly didn't do well critically or financially. As a result, Coppola announced his plans to produce his films going forward without 
any studio involvement whatsoever to avoid the marketing strategies that goes into making most films. And honestly, a lot of the times they really you know, beef them because they try to make them too widely appealing and that can have a tendency to backfire. I've seen this film a couple of times and it is, it's not his best work. I mean, that's, that's the kind of other, but it's nothing like the trailers that were cut for the film. It's kind of weird, but it's very Coppola. So it's like, what were they expecting? Next came Tetro in 2009 and then Twixt in 2011. Tetro is about two brothers living in Argentina and Twix is like a weird vampire movie. Both were given very limited releases, kind of a blip on the radar. They're not hard to find on streamers, but they're, you know, they're just not quite, they're different. Let's just say that. They're not bad. They're just, they're different. Coppola is currently working on, probably, sources are sources are split on this, an ongoing experimental semi-autobiographical film project called Deep Vision, which he has described as live cinema. I think that's theater, but like, I don't really get it. But anyway, different versions of this production have been broadcast to limited audiences, one at Oklahoma City Community College in June of 2015 and another at UCLA in July of 2016. Coppola led the project as a proof of concept piece for a bigger, more in-depth feature live broadcast that will recount the struggles and triumphs of three generations of an Italian-American family set against the birth and growth of the invention of television. As of this episode, that's all that's known. In April 2019, Coppola announced that he plans to direct Megalopolis, which he has been developing since the 1980s. The film will tell the story about the aftermath and reconstruction of New York City after a mega disaster. He was going to move forward with the project in the early 2000s, but after 9-11, he shelved it because it was clearly not the time to see New York City super messed up on screen again. In August 2021, it was announced that Coppola planned to use his own money, somewhere between 100 and 120 million of it, to make this film, which might explain why he sold several of his wineries last year. He hopes to be in production on Megalopolis in the fall of this year. Unlike the vast majority of people whom we've covered on this podcast, Francis Ford Coppola's story ain't over. With at least one, maybe two films still on the horizon, we still have more to see from the director who started an impressive body of work as a bedridden child in Queens. I've admired Coppola as a director since I was very young, and then his fearlessness as a filmmaker once I understood how debt worked. His entire career and his Frankly, his entire life has been in service to his art form, whether or not it would make him a prince or a pauper. And I cannot wait to see what comes next. Nothing is so terrible as a pretentious movie. I mean, a movie that aspires for something really terrific and doesn't pull it off is shit. It's scum. And everyone will walk on it as such. And that's why poor filmmakers, in a way, that's their greatest horror, is to be pretentious. So here you are, on one hand, trying to aspire to really do something. And on the other hand, you're not allowed to be pretentious. And finally you say, fuck it. I don't care if I'm pretentious or not pretentious or if I've done it or I haven't done it. All I know is that I am going to see this movie. And that for me, it has to have some answers. And by answers, I don't mean just a punchline. Answers on about 47 different levels. And uh, it's very hard to talk about these things without being very corny. You use a word like self-purgation or epiphany, they think you're either a, you know, a religious weirdo or a, you know, an asshole college professor. But those are the words for the process, this transmutation, this renaissance, this rebirth, which is the basis of all life.
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode, at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the chaos that was the making of The Godfather. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.